Welcome to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. If you want to become an MP, the first question to ask yourself is, do you want it badly enough to devote most of your life to it? If you don't, far better to abandon the idea now, wrote the now sadly deceased Tory MP Stephen Milligan in the early 90s. In his column in Next magazine, he warned about the years it might take to become a candidate, about the abuse you might receive from your opponents, and how your personal life could suffer. And he included helpful tips in the piece like try and make a joke during a speech to show you're human, try not to be a bore, and most selection committees prefer men and married men at that. 21,000. Sexism aside, the article is genuinely quite helpful reading material for anyone who wants to be an MP, even now. Is duly elected. Imagine. 16,000. And actually, it's not that easy for the average Joe or Josephine to find out how to enter that elite club. It's difficult to find out the rules. They change constantly. Difficult to find out how our candidates are chosen. We're really not supposed to discuss the selection process, I'm afraid. Difficult to find out where the candidates are chosen. You don't know where the Labour hustings are, do you? Harder still to actually get inside the room and find out what's going on. I can't even stand outside. And this stuff matters. Because you may think that you pick your MP at a general election when you place your ex in a box on your way to work on a random Thursday in May. And maybe you do. But if you live in a safe seat, the truth is that a lot of the time that choice has already been made for you. Behind closed doors in random community centres or auction houses or primary schools by little groups of local party members who may just have been swayed by unexpected local factors. Like how many times a prospective candidate has shown up at the village bake sale. Well, I want to open up this process to look behind the curtain at how these people, our future leaders, are being chosen. I'll hear from the Labour MP Stella Creasy on what it's actually like to run for selection. You know there's the RuPaul phrase about don't it up. That was kind of what was going through my head. Tory peer Anne Jenkin on diversity in her party. I would not accept us going backwards. We have to keep our foot on the pedal. The journalist and author Isabel Hardman on why we get the wrong politicians. There's never a job advert saying become an MP. Selection expert Michael Crick on the Labour candidates selected so far. There's a bit of lack of star quality. And in the week Jeremy Corbyn is officially banned from running as a Labour candidate, his former ally John Landsman speaks out. I hope, frankly, that 
He now retires. From Politico, I'm Aggie Chambray, and this week on Westminster Insider, I'll be touring the country on trains, my bike, even a local councillor's grey Audi, to ask, how do you really become an MP? And if our opaque political system is getting these choices right or wrong. Of the hundreds of candidates' selections to have been held in Britain over the past 10 years, this was perhaps the most important. The Conservative Party selection in Richmond, Yorkshire in 2014. After a fiercely fought contest, a young man called Rishi Sunak was selected as the parliamentary candidate to succeed local MP William Hague. Absolutely delighted. With a Tory majority of more than 20,000, everybody knew that whoever won the Richmond selection was certain to become an MP. But how did the future Prime Minister, a hedge fund manager who grew up in the leafy suburbs of Southampton and earned his millions in the City of London and California, become a Member of Parliament for this sprawling rural constituency in the north of England. Well, it began with more than 80 people applying for what is one of the safest seats in the country and ended with 200, mostly, dare I say it, elderly Conservative Party members sat in a room choosing between four shortlisted candidates. So I'm going to North Allerton because I'm going to see Councillor Ron Kirk. He was on the panel that selected Rishi Sunak um, before 2015. He was in the room, he knows what happened, so I'm very excited about that. Next stop is North Allerton in around 15 minutes. Oh, Ron, it's Hello. Uh, hello. Hello, thank yeah. you so All much right. for picking me up. Well, jump in the car okay, anyway. Great. I'll just pop this in the back seat, actually. So we have a lot of market towns in this constituency. It almost takes uh, two hours driving from one end of it to the other. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> we are driving so through idyllic country villages and green fields en route from North Allerton Station to Leyburn. Imagine this is one of the safe Conservative seats and therefore people are quite keen to be selected here and we go back almost a century with MPs who had had something to do with cabinet or certainly with the top echelons of the party. So we were looking for someone with the prospect of being able to achieve things within the party. They were given advice by the local association to find someone who had empathy with the North, someone who understood rural affairs, and someone who had the ability to be in the cabinet. Rishi Sunak, of course, grew up 300 miles away on the south coast of England and had no rural background at all. But a future cabinet minister? They'd have to wait and see. So he walked in not necessarily as everyone's first choice? No, I think that would be fair to say at that particular stage because one of the candidates that we did have onto the long list was in fact the lady who actually, prior to me, was chairman of the association. Oh, right, OK. Right. Probably beforehand, she would be the frontrunner uh, until I think people met Rishi. OK, so the woman who very nearly won the seat instead of Sunak was a local businesswoman from North Allerton named Wendy Morton. 
Yes, the same Wendy Morton who would later find a seat in the West Midlands and go on to become chief whip in Liz Truss's ill-fated administration. In 2014, Morton had given up her prized post as chairwoman of Richmond Conservative Association to run for William Hague's old seat. Anne had been the clear favourite before Sunak entered the race. Even though Sunak wasn't local, there was something about his application that made them put him on the long list. It didn't appear to be the most logical candidate for the north of England. His background and everything was quite different. But he just wowed everybody and that was the first word that was said to me uh, by one of the uh, members of the executive. One of the things that Rishi did was immediately was put onto the long list. He actually moved up to this constituency and therefore was available within the constituency and immediately started going round the constituency uh, trying to meet as many people as he could. And it was absolutely clear that people were impressed with him. Uh, And I was certainly impressed with him and thought, here is someone who... uh, uh, is very committed and uh, wants to be an MP and uh, has a lot of prospects. We discovered that uh, what he was excellent at was absorbing information. Yeah, got a lot of advice from William Hague. Well, I know he did. Oh, so was he William Hague's pick, do you think? I would assume so. Ron Kirk takes me into the auction hall where Sunak was chosen and kindly reenacts the scene for me. Stand on the stage. I just want to. I just want you to show me where you were standing <laughs> on that historic night. <laughs> oh dear! <laughs> I'll let you go up first. Rishi and his wife Akshita come and stand behind the curtains. Mm. Uh, I threaten to do what they do on television when they have these competitions, which is to do a countdown or, or let them wait 20 seconds or something like that, but decided not to, uh, and brought Rishi onto the stage. Do you feel proud that you selected Very much now? so, yes. Oh, yes, you've got to, haven't you? To think that we did finish up with someone who now has made Prime Minister. I don't necessarily think we thought it would be as quick as this, but... Uh, You know, that's the nature of Rishi. The main thing that struck me was just how simple it seemed. I guess it does help if William Hague's in your corner. But this wasn't his first attempt to get selected. In fact, you may not be surprised to hear, it can actually be pretty hard to become an MP. I've spoken to a dozen MPs, former MPs and almost MPs about their experiences. Incredibly, some tried to get selected in scores of different seats around the country over a period of decades. One Tory MP told me he'd applied for about a dozen seats and he made the shortlist two or three times before finally finding one ahead of the 2001 general election. He described the weekend spent driving around the country as gruelling. A former minister told me of her 25 attempts to get selected in the early noughties, resulting in numerous interviews before her eventual success. Suella Braverman apparently tried 40 different times to get into Parliament. I don't think that includes the time when she and her mum wanted the same seat in the early noughties and the now Home Sec kindly backed down. There'd be a gang of people who would go round from selection to selection to selection. This is journalist Michael Crick 
whose Tomorrow's MPs project on Twitter is charting the hidden world of selections ahead of the next general election. He recalls the endless merry-go-round of wannabe MPs he's witnessed over the years. And it would be George Osborne, Theresa May, Damien Green, David Cameron, and they'd all be... <laughs> and, um, well, you know, one would get selected and then they'd all move on. Or in some cases, none of those would be get selected. Oh, wow. Someone else altogether would get selected. Yeah. Some non-entity. <laughs> and there was one selection where Damien Green's wife, I think, Alicia, she's a, a barrister, David Cameron turned up and he'd split his trousers. So, so Alicia Connison sewed up his trousers for him so that he could perform. And John Burko was telling me the other day that when he um, got, uh, he got two constituency associations in um, Surrey Heath, they wanted him to do uh, a selection. And Buckingham also wanted him to do a selection. And both selections were at the same time on the same day. And so he said, well, what if I have a helicopter? Can't you agree that uh, Surrey Heath will have me on first? And then I can get in the helicopter and fly to Buckingham and then they can have me on as the last contender. And that's what they did. I may not have heard any stories of helicopters firsthand, but one person I spoke to did have three selection interviews in one day. Fortunately for them, their partner was on hand to drive them around. She told me she read the telegraph between selection hearings to stay on message and that her main concern was not mixing up the names of constituencies. Now... If all this has whetted your appetite and you were to wake up tomorrow and decide that actually your calling was to become a Member of Parliament, then listen up. I am going to tell you exactly how to do it. Okay, so with every party, there's a slightly different process. For the Conservatives, first there's a paper application, then a formal assessment day. If you get through that, then you're either onto the full candidates list or a regional one which restricts you to only marginal seats until you've demonstrated your commitment. Tory MP Luke Hall, now Deputy Party Chairman, apparently demonstrated his commitment by arriving at a by-election campaign at 3am. He soon found out canvassing didn't start until 9.30am. So, he found a supportive billboard, pulled it out of the ground and stood by the side of the motorway for four and a half hours. Fortunately, the director of campaigning saw him doing this and he was then allowed to run for his home seat. Anyway, after you're on the list, you can then apply for a seat, then the long list, short list and the final selection interview. After which, local members vote on who they want. And then you stand for election. For Labour, you apply directly for a seat. The long list is drawn up by Labour HQ, shortlist decided by the local party and the winner is decided by local members' votes. But whichever party you're applying to, there's one thing everyone agrees on. The process is no fun at all. It can involve you moving house, pausing work, spending a lot of money and can take a huge personal toll. I sometimes joke it's like a really bad family Christmas because it's weekends and days of everybody who you've known for a long time telling you what you're doing wrong in your life and why they will won't support you accordingly. And you have to take that. Here is Labour MP Stella Creasy on what it's actually like to go through the selection process. She now also runs an organisation called Mother Red, which is helping more mothers to stand for Parliament. My best friend who was with me at the time of that selection had to literally push me into the room to go and give a speech about why I wanted to do it because I was utterly terrified about it. But it was a good learning curve. Um, And absolutely, having gone through a selection before Walthamstow became... Um, available to stand for this back in 2007 
taught me a whole load of things about a process to say how people respond, what they're looking for, some of the tricks that people have about um, who supports who and how you put yourself forward. Tricks? But surely this is an open and honest democratic process. The technicalities of the process, and I can only obviously speak to my own political party, um, are absolutely built for insiders. And I think we have to be honest for that. Um, the idea that it is an open, transparent process doesn't reflect the reality of, of how local members of any political party make choices and the choices that are put in front of them. Creasy can still remember every detail from the day of her Walthamstow selection. So I remember on the day feeling really awkward in this silly red suit <laughs> with this, this fluffy hair kind of trying to look old. Actually, I don't think that made a difference to anybody on the day in terms of what I looked like. I think this is, sounds like a therapy session. I remember being in the, the loo just before I went on stage to give my speech, listening to music to kind of drown out the nerves and having the beat of the music in my head as I went in and thinking, right, you know there's the RuPaul phrase about don't it up. That was kind of what was going through my head. So actually, you know, in the end, all the silly suits and fluffy hair didn't matter. I really loved this image of Stella, dressed in a cool red suit, which, very sadly, she says she's now thrown away. And who hasn't done this? Listen to music in a toilet cubicle, trying to pump yourself up before a really big moment. So, as my 1990s pamphlet told me, the most helpful attribute on the path to becoming an MP back then was to be a married man. It won't surprise you to hear there is still plenty of sexism surrounding selections, according to plenty of people who've been involved in them. The former minister I spoke to told me one of her lowest moments was when she was trying to get selected and failed at the final hurdle. The winner sidled up to her and said, the association did mention your skirt was a bit short. She said she went home, drank half a bottle of sherry, which she says helped. Stella Creasy has heard contemporary stories like this too. There's things that people say to undermine candidates. <laughs> One of the women who was standing against me got her daughters to come and say to me, where are you going to go after this selection then? <laughs> I was like, I had a reasonable chance of winning, so I'll see what happens here. <laughs> she was just like, of course you're not going to win. So there's a bit of that kind of um, what I'd call the Alex Ferguson line of attack. But more substantially, there is the conscious bias and then there's the unconscious bias. So the conscious bias are things that people say, particularly to women, uh, candidates of colour, anybody who's disabled. I mean, I've had people say that they've been asked, well, how will you cope? And you just think no one would ask a man that. Nobody would absolutely, nobody would ask how your kids are going to cope. Nobody would ask what your plan is um, about whether you're going to get married or not, because that's basically code for, are you going to have children? I've heard over and over again that they'll see three women candidates and they'll all say, gosh, those women are fantastic. And in comes the bloke and they say, oh, but there's our MP. This is the Tory peer Anne Jenkin, an old mate of Theresa May's and one of the founders of Women to Win, a Tory pressure group that attempts to get more women into Parliament. It was launched in 2005 when there were just 17 female Tory MPs. Around the same time, Anne Jenkin helped David Cameron launch his A-list. This was a set of approved candidates of equal numbers, men and women, and a significant proportion from ethnic minorities and people with disabilities. They were given priority over other candidates and local winnable associations were told to choose from this list. The approach proved controversial with the Tories' rank and file and was quietly dropped after that election. 
the concept of the A-list or priority list or gold list or whatever you want to call it is that they identified off the candidates list, which is usually about six, seven hundred people. And it wasn't obviously an exact science. It couldn't be. But, but the retirement seats and the good seats were expected to pick off that list, that top hundred list, if you like. So it wasn't without controversy and it was quite difficult to implement, but it did work as a mechanism. We got a lot of the women who subsequently won obviously came off that list and some are still there today. And in 2012, I think I'm right in saying it was kind of quietly dropped as a concept. I th- I don't remember exactly when. In a, in a way, it has sort of done its work, if you like. Uh, I think it was a change of chairmanship and some probably some intense lobbying behind the scenes that I wasn't really aware of. So do we need something like that again, or do you feel it did its work? It, it's, it's hard for me to say. I'm, at this minute, optimistic that we will increase our numbers in proportionally, even if it's not in numerically. Um, if that proves not to be the case, then I would certainly make a strong argument. I mean, we cannot go backwards. I would not accept us going backwards in percentage terms. We have to keep our foot on the pedal. Cameron's A-list provoked controversy at the time, so it is striking that Anne Jenkin doesn't rule out the return of one in the future. As it stands, though, Jenkin will continue playing a behind-the-scenes role in selections and helping to find new female MPs. And she's got a pretty good record so far. Gillian Keegan, the Education Secretary, for example, is only where she is today because of a chance meeting with Jenkin on a night out in May 2014. I got a last-minute invitation to the theatre, and in the interval, we bumped into work colleagues of the friend who'd taken me. And he then said to me, oh, by the way, Gillian would make her a great MP. Do you remember kind of seeing her in the theatre and thinking... Well, I remember we had a... Yes, we had a drink in the interval. I suppose I've been at this business now quite a long time, and I can... In a way, I can smell it, you know, I can see whether somebody's got what it takes. And I said, great, well, come and see me next week. You know, within less than 10 years from when I met her, here she is in the cabinet. For those not fortunate enough to bump into Anne Jenkin at the theatre or to have the support of a campaign group, there are other ways to get the help you need. But it'll cost you. Some wannabe MPs hire a Megabucks personal tutor to help them with their interview selection. One such coach, Graham Davies, told me he has helped between 60 and 70 Tory MPs and more than 20 cabinet ministers, including Rishi Sunak and Michael Gove. In fact, he said, he's had many, many sessions with Sunak ever since the now Prime Minister originally applied for the candidates list. Davey says his rates are variable, but it's about three and a half grand for two hours. Apropos of uh, nothing... Here's spectator journalist Isabel Hardman, who wrote a book called Why We Get the Wrong Politicians. A lot of it does have to do with candidate selection. So in the Conservative world, um, there are people who you can pay quite a nice amount of money to prepare a constituency profile so that you understand the population profile of the area, where the disadvantaged wards are, what the issues with the roads, the rail network, if it exists... Are and so on, so that when you turn up to the selection meeting, you can say, and of course I know that you're really worried about the blockages on the A590, and everyone will nod going, yes, we've been worried about that for years, when you've never travelled down the A590 in your life. 
people don't know how to become MPs. I mean, this is something that Gloria De Piero, when she was a Labour MP, she did this tour of the of the country called Why Do People Hate Me? I did suggest to her she could just go on Twitter and save herself a lot of time. But she did. She went to you know supermarkets, bingo halls, fitness classes. It, it sounded exhausting. And she was wanting to find out why people felt disillusioned with politics. And she often met people who really care passionately about their local communities. And she'd say, well, what, why don't you think of standing? And they'd say, well, how? Where's the job advert? You know, and there's, there's never a job advert saying, become an MP. And so unless you're within those networks, the people to approach, the way to behave, the things to wear, the lists, all of that is a complete mystery. OK, so what Isabel means by the lists is the list of local members' names and contact details. Anyone in the Labour Party on the shortlist is given this, but only once they've reached the shortlist. But some prospective candidates find ways to get the list before. For example, if your pal is a party insider, and that is obviously a massive advantage. Get it early and you've got the jump on your rivals. That means that you can do door knocking earlier because one of the things that you have to do as a candidate going for selection is get around the membership. And that's that can be really big in some seats. And so if you have earlier access or if you have a little bit of extra knowledge, it makes your life much easier. These are the hidden set of rules, the barriers that distort our politics from the ground up and stack the odds against outsiders breaking into the Westminster bubble and becoming members of parliament. Coming up, the cost, the difference your postcode makes, and... You see that the left has just disappeared, effectively in France, in Italy, which has a fascist government. That could happen in Britain. Stay with us. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A message from Lloyds Banking Group. Lloyds Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. Rishi Sunak is a multi-millionaire. When he ran for Richmond, he rented a car, a hotel room, and spent time away from his home finding out about the constituency. Really doing his homework, as Ron Kirk told me. That costs money. One frontbench Labour MP told me they spent about three grand on their selection campaign and they lived locally. 
So that was just on printing, mailing leaflets, running phone banks, that sort of thing. They didn't have that cash, but friends of theirs chipped in. The costs of becoming a candidate and then an MP get higher and higher and higher all the time as the competition gets more intense and as politics becomes more professional. Here's Michael Crick again. So realistically, you have to t- if you want to become a candidate in a seat, you have to take a considerable time off work or what your normal activities are. So you, you either have to be reasonably well off so you can do that or, uh, or you have to have a good income from your partner or spouse. And, uh, you know, some of these people spend months and months and months going around the constituency. It excludes people with low-paid jobs, people who have strict employers who are not willing to let them have the time off, or people who have employers are rather embarrassed that they have a political candidate. Isabel Hardman, too, thinks the cost of selections can be prohibitive. Oh, it is, because it's thousands of pounds. You know, you're having leaflets printed to go around the membership. As you say, you're travelling to the constituency if you're not local. You're staying somewhere, what, Airbnb, bed and breakfast. So, I mean, some candidates really go for it and they buy a house in the constituency. They've decided this is where they're going to go. I mean, I was told of one candidate who thought that the incumbent MP was probably likely to die in the next few years, so decided to get in there <laughs> prior to the seat because vacant and bought a house there which I mean I sort of admire in a kind of Becky Sharp-esque way but yeah you know all of that adds up and lots of people don't have like £3,000 to spend on leaflets. Tory, Peer and Jenkin however does not think people are priced out of standing. I don't think so I mean we have candidates from all kinds of backgrounds the idea of it probably puts people more than the reality of it but at Women to Win itself, we fundraise and we do donate to every single woman candidate's campaign. And we will also look at costs for childcare and that sort of thing. And I think that if anybody has got what it takes and has a real problem with the cost, there will be a way to make that happen. But I mean, I know a lot of find it very, very difficult. Anne Milton, who was the MP for Guildford, and she was a nurse before she came in. I remember her her car exhaust falling off and her thinking, I don't think I'm going to be able to get through to the election because it was tied. But that's why it's not for everybody. But you you say kind of that's why it's not for everybody. Mm. Do you mean kind of people from maybe more humble background, if they can't afford to run, maybe they just shouldn't? Um, Well, most of our candidates have come from, I mean, sorry, a lot have come from quite humble backgrounds, if you like, but most of them have also had some sort of success to have got to where they are. I mean, you know, you look at Johnny Mercer, you look at you know, people who've been through and prepared to make, you know, quite considerable sacrifice on the risk. Stuart Anderson, I think it is, in Wolverhampton, moved his entire family, five children, because he believed he could win, and he has won. But, you know, there was a lot of risk involved in it. Um, but I, I don't believe there are people who, are, who have got what it takes and don't actually get here in the end. There are, of course, people who do believe they have what it takes, who've not managed to become members of Parliament, who would disagree with Tory Peer and Jenkin there. They might blame a rigged system, the upheaval required, or simply the sky-high costs. But there is one way to keep down those costs, and that's to run for a local seat so you can avoid those pesky accommodation or house-moving fees. This was the point made by former Momentum boss and founder John Landsman. I think it may price people who don't live in the, you know, who live a long way from the constituency out. But what's wrong with local candidates? You know, it doesn't necessarily price them out. 
Now, this might be the most contentious issue of all when it comes to MP selections. Ask a member of the public and they'll probably tell you they want their MP to be local. There are always grumblings when MPs are parachuted into areas they have no affiliation with. And as a result, candidates do occasionally stretch the definition of what it is to be local. Isabel Hardman tells a story in her book that a number of candidates one year all claimed to be conceived in the area because that was the only local link they could think of. John Landsman feels very strongly that candidates should be from the area they run in. Not all candidates have to be people who see it as a career. You know, it can be people who want to do something for their community. We want to have someone who feels right in the constituency, who ideally lives locally or local-ish, you know, who has an experience which gives them an understanding of what people who live there want and need. And I think the biggest problem for selections now in the Labour Party, but I suspect it applies to other parties, is that, I mean, in the Labour Party, currently 75% of MPs came from a previous political post, mainly councillors, but also they might work for unions, they might do policy work, and that narrows the range of experience. So that's a big problem. Now, of course, councillor Ron Kirk, the man who helped select Rishi Sunak, wanted an MP who knew the area. But more than that, he wanted the most impressive candidate, and ideally someone who could be in the cabinet. And his local Conservative Association was able to focus on this because they didn't also need to worry about fighting tooth and nail for the seat. In true blue Richmond, victory was already in the bag. Anne Jenkin thinks this, rather than John Lansman's always-go-local approach, is the right way to go about selecting MPs. So I think that there are certain safe seats who have a sort of responsibility to pick future cabinet ministers, if you know what I mean. So I, I think it's... It's horses for courses, but if the local is of a good enough quality and who is going to thrive in Parliament as an MP rather than as a local councillor, then fine. But they they ought to at least see some alternatives and see them with an open mind. Most of the candidates who've been chosen so far for the next election have been selected by Labour, more than 100 in total. And the majority of them are, indeed, local candidates a stat you'd imagine the party would be proud of. Michael Crick, though, the veteran journalist charting these selections, is not impressed. I mean, overall, it's quite a dull list. Uh, This is Labour. It's overwhelmingly local. There's only really about, not even half a dozen candidates, you could say, are true outsiders. 10, 20 years ago, you would get people going around the country, trying here, trying there, and eventually they'd get one. Most famous politicians in the past did not have any real local link to where they were the MP for. I just think that by insisting your candidate is local, and a lot of them are local councillors, you are excluding a lot of people of ability. People of ability who don't actually come from a Labour area, say. There's a bit of lack of star quality in the the selections so far. I'm normally at a a general... There are two or three people. You know, people like Sebastian Coe or Glenda Jackson, you know, who've made their names in some other walk of life. And we haven't really got those yet. I'm sure some of the Labour candidates selected would protest at this. Last weekend, I decided to try and watch a selection. Now, it's actually not easy to find out which hustings are going on when and especially not where they're happening. 
Some Labour MPs say they actually only know hustings are happening because of Michael Crick's Twitter. So I found out that there was one happening in Crawley. Finally got the location from someone on Facebook Messenger. After a train ride and a quick cycle from the station, I arrived at the local high school and located the gym. Hi, you don't know where the Labour hustings are, do you? Labour hustings. I tried to watch Democracy in Action. There was some sign that said it was around here. Sadly, um, I wasn't allowed in. I, I can't even stand outside. Oh, yeah, yeah. Instead, I sat outside and occasionally convinced people to talk to me. He said that you were far enough away not to hear and record. I suppose it's all very private. Okay, team, hour three outside this election. I'm just having a peek through the glass doors. Mm, Looks like they are still counting. Okay, I can hear people shouting, so I think the announcement might have just been made. But let's find out when people come out of the room. Are you pleased? Yes. The runner-up agreed to have a chat. Of course, it's disappointing, because <laughs> this is my hometown, so that's why I was very keen to represent this than just any place. Yeah, it wasn't a career decision. The winner did not. We're really not supposed to discuss selection process, I'm afraid. Can I just ask whether you're happy, you won, I'm always happy, that's part of my life. (laughs) Okay, so this was a Labour selection. The Tories haven't officially started selecting their candidates yet, which is why this is currently a Labour story. And during Labour's selection, a massive row has erupted between the leadership and the left of the party. The left are angry because they think Labour HQ is stitching up the process to keep left-wingers off long lists. Labour HQ says there's no stitch-up and it's all about sharp quality control. Anyway, this all reached boiling point this week when Jeremy Corbyn was officially banned from standing for the party. There has been a lot of naughtiness, put it that way. Here's Michael Crick again. Worse than naughtiness, actually, in these Labour selections. Whether Keir Starmer knows everything... Uh, that's been going on in his name. I don't know. I think he's turned a bit of a blind eye, frankly. And uh, he probably doesn't want to know. <laughs> but, uh, somebody somebody put it very neatly to me the other day. They said, the selection doesn't go ahead until Starmer's office know who they want. But they don't always get who they want, but yeah. most of the time they do. You know, The left have done really, really badly. They've given up, actually, the left in most places. And there's only really one candidate that you could say is on the left. And even there, other people on the left say, well, she's not that left wing, which is Faisal Shaheen, who is a, an economist who's standing in um, Chingford and Woodford Green, which is Ian Duncan Smith's seat. And she stood there last time. Clearly, if she becomes an MP, she will make quite an impact in the House. John Landsman, as I mentioned, a key Corbyn ally, is furious about what he perceives to be stitch-ups with the process. Selections are being stitched up. Keir Starmer is someone who got elected on the basis of a promise to end factionalism. What he's actually done is end factionalism by putting one faction in charge of fixing the selections, you know, which is led by people in his office. So obviously, if you look at this at face value, people are long-listed, people are short-listed, and then the local uh, party votes. How 
could you actually stitch up that process? You can stitch stitch it up by ruling out certain candidates, preventing them being on the shortlist. If you don't have dissenters in the Parliamentary Labour Party, you don't have debate. If you don't have debate, you don't have accountability, you don't have proper scrutiny, which is why things like the Iraq war, the disasters, the disaster that took place in that Iraq war, you know, those things will happen again if you do not have diversity, pluralism, inclusivity and proper scrutiny. If you look at other European parties, you see that the left has just disappeared effectively in France, in Italy, which has a fascist government and in, and in other countries too. That could happen in Britain. There's no reason why not. What you think Keir Starmer not having any left-wing MPs could lead to a fascist government? You think there could be a sort of link between those two things happening? Absolutely. We've seen a, a, the rise of the far right and we see it you know, the gov- in the governments of Italy, Poland, Hungary. You know, we see it in the rise of the far right in Germany, in France. You know, it's across the world and it could happen here. If the Labour Party narrows to become you know, a narrow party of the left, it w- in a first-past-the-post system, it will not survive as the left party. Since I had John Lansman in the studio, I had to ask what he thought about Labour banning Jeremy Corbyn. Worth noting, though, we were speaking before he was formally banned on Tuesday afternoon. What has happened is improper under the Labour rules. I mean, Jeremy said something after the HRC report was published, which I disagreed with and I criticised. I don't think he should have said it. It was right that he was sanctioned. Um, But after the end of that process, what happened was political interference by the leadership. So in that sense, I think it is wrong. Uh, he, sh- you know, then and people in Islington North should be able to choose their own shortlist and their own candidate. But do you, it kind of sounds like what you're saying, and please correct me if this is wrong. That you feel actually he's served his penance. He was very publicly uh, suspended from the Labour Party, and actually now he should be allowed to run as a Labour candidate in Islington North. Well, he should have been. I mean, I don't think uh, the leader's office are going to change their mind on that. You know, and I, because I want to see a Labour government, I don't, you know, I I want to see Labour candidates win. So, uh, you know, that's where I stand on it. Uh, I mean, Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the Labour Party. He's still a member of the Labour Party. I hope, frankly, that he now uh, retires and it doesn't stop him to voting his life to more to politics. He will have a probably a bigger voice as a Labour Party member who used to be leader of the Labour Party than he would have as a backbench independent MP if if he became one. So you don't think Momentum will be campaigning for him in Islington North as an independent? My prediction is that Momentum will not be campaigning for him as an independent, yes. So there we go. Islington North may get a choice between Labour and Corbyn, but if John Lansman gets his choice, Islington North won't. There are clearly huge issues to the way we select MPs. The secrecy, the closed shop feel of it all, the obvious barriers to entry for so many ordinary people. But are there better systems out there? America has open primaries, which are much more open systems, much more easily accessible for anyone who wants to vote in them, but which also cost far more and take up far more of their politicians' time in fundraising and campaigning. So, before we give up on our entire political system, I will remind you about my day last Saturday 
outside the Labour hustings. Because what struck me in hour number four and uh, minute 212 was that nearly 100 political party members bothered to turn up on a weekend to listen, I'm told diligently, to the speeches, to the Q&A, they thought about it, and then they cast their vote. For the most part, I think, they're doing it because they care about their local communities and they believe politics can make a difference. So if these are the people choosing our MPs, maybe it could be worse? In a world of cynicism and deep political apathy, at least these people are showing up. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Westminster Insider. If you've enjoyed it, do please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, leave us a comment, or we really do love any love on social media. And don't forget, you can go back and listen to past episodes, including Watch Out Future MPs, Jack's episode from season six on why Britain always hates its leaders in the end. My producer this week was Eve Streeter of Whistledown Productions. My executive producer was Robert Nicholson of Whistledown Productions. And here at Politico, my editor is Jack Blanchard. We'll be back next week. See you then. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.